You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. On today's episode, my conversation is with Ralph Clark, who's the president and CEO of ShotSpotter. I think this will be interesting to our audience for a number of reasons, but two primarily I want to highlight. One, the company went through a real refounding moment when Ralph joined as CEO. And two, is a public company. And you'll hear how he communicates slightly differently in terms of vocabulary than some private company CEOs. ShotSpotter, if you don't know it, is a company that helps law enforcement identify the location of shots. Shots fired to prevent gun violence between people, shots fired to prevent poaching, or even explosions that might have to do with illegal fishing. They've got about 110 employees headquartered in Oakland, California. And with recent acquisitions, I think they're pushing towards 60 million in revenue. Now, the bio I was given says, Ralph Clark is a technology company CEO who's equally committed to shareholder value and making a meaningful societal impact. Leading ShotSpotter since 2010, he's been dedicated to helping law enforcement agencies provide equal protection for at-risk, underserved neighborhoods, reducing gun violence, and restoring police as trusted guardians of the community. Clark led a transformation of ShotSpotter to a SaaS business model, ultimately taking the company public in 2017. Now that's what I wanted to drill in on a little bit more. The transformation of ShotSpotter from hardware, perpetual license-based business model, where uh, customers are expected to play a lot upfront to a subscription business model where they're paying ongoing is a big transformation for a business to go through. And I consider that a refounding moment uh, where he came in. With more than 30 years experience, uh, corporate financial and organizational leadership, Clark was previously CEO of Guardian Edge Technologies. We'll touch on that a bit, where he drove its acquisition by Semantic. Earlier in his career, he worked for IBM, Goldman Sachs, and Merrill Lynch. So I think that Wall Street experience is probably very helpful for him as public company CEO. Clark received the 2019 Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award for Northern California, prestigious, and that's that's a hats off to him. He is a former board member and chair of Pacific Community Ventures, former board member and chair of the Oakland Boys and Girls Club, uh, former trustee and vice chair of the Oakland Museum of California, is a member of Harvard Business School's California Advisory Board and is trustee of American Conservatory Theater. He holds a BS in economics from the University of Pacific and an MBA from the Harvard Business School. Please stay tuned. Welcome to Startups for Good, Ralph. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Miles. I've been looking forward to this. Wonderful. I'm excited to learn about ShotSpotter and your history before that. Let me start by congratulating you on Entrepreneur of the Year 2019 Northern California from Ernst & Young. It's a great achievement. Yeah, thank you very much for that. Um, it was my second try. I think um, I was part of the process in 2017 as well and learned a lot, met some really interesting uh, people. And I think the second time was a charm for me in 2019. Now, we often have people on the podcast who are early in their journey as well. and companies at your stage already public, um, growing, is I think going to be really interesting for our audience. So I'd love to hear your perspective on what it was like to participate in that program and why you think you won. 
Well, I think a lot of it has to do uh, with the company that I've been involved with now for the past uh, 10 years. Um, as I think you mentioned in the intro, I'm the president and CEO of ShotSpotter Incorporated. And we provide an acoustic gunshot detection technology that police departments use to be able to respond to and investigate incidents of outdoor criminal uh, gunfire. And uh, the reason this work is so important and the technology is so compelling is that we obviously have a gun violence issue in too many of our at-risk underserved communities here in the U.S. and actually some places internationally. But most people don't realize, by and large, a significant portion, 90, 95% of that gunfire goes unreported to police. And so our technology really is the uh, digital transformation of that process that allows for police departments to be immediately uh, notified in a very precise way whenever anyone fires a gun. And because they're immediately notified, they're able to respond to these incidents, investigate them, and over the course of time, uh, hopefully be able to reduce and prevent gun violence, which has a very interesting social purpose, social good outcome, uh, hopefully as a result of that. Um, this you know, super aspirational to be involved in a business that is helping prevent and reduce gun violence and bring some sense of normalcy to many uh, communities that are suffering from ongoing persistent gunfire. And then on top of that, it's a pretty interesting business as well that uh, we pivoted to a managed services subscription-based business model when I joined the company back in 2010. And so we've been able to grow it, grow it profitably, and then ultimately take it public in 2017. So I think all that stuff together probably made a pretty interesting, unique story. And then in addition, I think maybe people just took pity on me for having gone through the process in 2017 and decided to cut me, cut me some slack and uh, allow me into the Entrepreneur of the Year program for uh, Northern California. But in any event, I'm super grateful. Yeah, that's wonderful. I bet they just got a chance to know the story more. How do you think that mission-driven part of the company fits in with the public company profitability part? Do you see them ever at odds or are they going together? You know, they go together completely. So when I when I think about purpose and why, I almost kind of draw like a Venn diagram for your listeners out there. Venn diagram, you can kind of think of kind of three circles that have some amount of overlap. And the, the, the circles could basically represent various stakeholders. So in our case, you know, we have, I would say, kind of police departments and communities that they serve. And then another circle might be uh, the company in terms of the employees and partners and vendors and the like. And then the third circle, I think you can consider being investors, private, initially private market, uh, you know, private investors or venture capitalists, uh, PE investors, and then now more recently public market investors. And the more you can have a sense of purpose and why, the more overlap you can get amongst those circles, which means there's less friction, there's much more alignment. And so if people are thinking more about the why or the purpose, they're thinking less about how they optimize maybe their own individual interests because you're you're looking at something bigger than your interests. And as a result of all those stakeholders kind of thinking, you know, more globally or more aspirationally in terms of purpose and why, 
it creates less friction and the less friction you have in running a business, you can, you know, be more profitable. You can have more impact. You can create more return. Uh, you can create really interesting uh, opportunities for employees and partners and the like. And it just all seems uh, to work because you have great alignment. Uh, alignment is, I think, critical to uh, successful growth businesses. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. So that mission also helps on the employee side in terms of creating that alignment as well. Yeah, no, 100%. I think one of the things that attracts a lot of our employees to the company is that, you know, it's A, an interesting technology, B, we serve a really noble purpose. And, you know, we're in Silicon Valley where we compete with, you know, the likes of a Facebook and Google for kind of, you know, talented uh, employee base. Um, And we just don't have the resources, uh, the, the typical financial resources to maybe compete with a Google and Facebook, but we have something that they don't have, which is a more, I consider, noble purpose in terms of helping uh, law enforcement serve on a much more equitable basis the needs of at-risk underserved communities. And I think people feel really proud to work with the company. You know, I think we pay people relatively, you know, nicely, but, you know, again, we're, we're certainly not competing with the benefits and maybe salary compensation of, um, you know, Facebook and, and Google and the like, nor is anyone going to be a zillionaire working for ShotSpotter, but I think you can feel really good for the work that you put in. And I think um, what's really cool about our company too is that we're so connected and in touch with our customers in responding to these gunfire alerts and getting these stories back of how they're making a difference because they were able to maybe aid a gunshot wound victim and save their life. Or sometimes you actually do, you know, sadly have to have law enforcement interventions where you recover a gun or you arrest a uh, serial shooter or the like. I mean, those are really, really rewarding to kind of hear those stories and know that you're making a difference or be you're making you're part of making a difference. We're not making a difference exclusively by ourselves, but we're part of an overall uh, difference that's being made in uh, some of these communities. That's really electrifying real world difference that's more intense than what you hear the rhetoric from some companies. I'm curious, we've seen, maybe it's media driven, but we've seen communities and police officers, law enforcement be portrayed as at at odds. And do you feel like with police and law enforcement as your customers, do you ever feel like any of that sense of they're at odds with the community or is it serving both together? Well, no, I think I think that's real. I mean, I think in many communities, uh, there is a, I would say, a, a friction laden relationship between communities and police. I mean, you, you can't ignore that fact with all of the conversations you're hearing around, you know, you know, defund the police, Black Lives Matter movement, et cetera. These are real conversations. And I think that's part of the thing that makes our work, I think, so relevant in that we've been preaching for a long time that technology can be, again, not the total solution, but it can be a part of the solution to help police departments uh, drive much more, I say, community uh, trust and support. Um, When people say defund the police, uh, and this is a really interesting call, I was writing about this literally five years ago on some blog posts that I did, but, you know, it's it's interesting to see how the conversations move forward in in terms of kind of defund the police. I, I don't think most people you know, literally mean defund the police as in cut their budget. Some people on the extreme might mean that, but I think by and large, what most people mean is they want to reimagine, re-envision how policing gets done in at-risk underserved communities. And at the heart of it is what they're saying is we don't want to be over-policed and underserved at the same time. And that's what happens in too many 
of our at-risk underserved communities. They're being over-policed and underserved at the same time. And you say, well, how can that be? How can you be over-policed and underserved? And I say you can be over-policed and underserved when, you know, police are kind of adopting a occupation tile, you know, occupation style warrior mentality in some of these at-risk underserved communities, which by and large are law-abiding people that are uh, subject to or victims of very few criminal elements. Um, and so when you have very broad stop and frisk postures and, you know, you're literally harassing people in these uh, communities, uh, by and large, that are law abiding uh, individuals, that's an example of over policing. And at the same time you're doing that, you're not showing up when people fire a gun, because, again, we know 90, 95 percent of the time guns are fired. Police people don't call police for a lot of reasons, but which we can talk about later, but they don't call, which means there's no police response. They're being underserved in that regard, because if you took that same police posture, maybe five or six miles away in the more affluent part of the same city, you never have that. You wouldn't have police stopping and frisking uh, people in the nice part of, quote unquote, the nice part of town. Uh, and you certainly wouldn't have police not show up when a gun was fired in the nice part of town. And that's something for me, that's something for me that is quite personal, um, having grown up in Oakland, California, and, you know, having lived there for a number of years, there's a place that I grew up in, and then there's a part of Oakland that I live in now, and to know the contrast of how policing gets done as an example in two different communities within the same city really makes it very clear what people are talking about when you're talking about the friction between community and police. And I think it's a good conversation to have, and I'm excited about I think we can go collectively as a society if people are going to listen to what people are saying when they say defund the police and, you know, reimagine how policing gets done. And again, technology that, you know, can help drive much more precision oriented police. And I like to say, and I'll just end on this point, this point is like communities don't need to be policed. They need to be served. You know, you hear people talk about community policing, I can kind of reject that notion of community policing because that by and large, I think criminals need to be policed and communities need to be served. And that's the mindset and vocabulary we need to use if we're going to improve the relationship between at-risk underserved communities and the law enforcement agencies that are bound by oath to serve and protect, not police, serve and protect. That's very different. I like that framing. That makes sense to me. I grew up in San Francisco and uh, remember visiting Oakland and even how much uh, downtown Oakland has changed. And some people like that, some people complain about that and try to open an office in downtown Oakland. And I think uh, 2012, 20, no, 2011. And I had uh, a lot of our employees complain we, we weren't able to do it. Oh uh, yeah. It's amazing how, how the town has changed. Mm -hmm. Well, come now. We need you. Yeah, definitely. definitely. <laughs> uh, well, my third business, we did. We did open. Oh, you did? Uh, okay. Business. Downtown Oakland? In downtown Oakland. So Brilliant. Uh, finally, finally got people to recognize. I was mentioning it because um, you, you were talking about Oakland as competing for talent with Silicon Valley. And I think the geographic notion of Silicon Valley has expanded um, yes. to, to include Oakland now. And I think that's fascinating as someone who's grown up in the Bay Area. Um, you were talking about gun violence and what can be done to prevent it. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to know your perspective more broadly on it. Uh, in addition to what ShotSpotter can do, are there other opportunities that we should be taking advantage of? 
Well, I think for, for gun violence prevention and reduction, I think all roads lead through focused deterrence. And what I mean by focused deterrence is that when you realize that the vast majority of incidents of shootings, and shootings equal more than homicides and gunshot wound victims, by the way. It's anytime anyone uses a gun in a criminal way, which if you're shooting a gun outdoors in a lot of cities, that's criminal criminal use. Um, the fact of the matter is that the vast majority of gun violence is perpetrated by very few individuals. This is very much a Pareto problem in that, you know, a small handful or small percent of shooters drive the vast majority of shootings, 70, 80 percent. And so when you have strategies that can quickly identify those very few offenders that drive most of the gun violence problem and either have, you know, I would say carrot interventions or stick interventions, which drive deterrence, you can prevent and reduce gun violence. I think the two need to go hand in hand. And so what I mean by carrot and stick, so there's a lot of, you know, kind of violence interruption strategies where, you know, they kind of bring people together and they say, hey, look, I need you to, you know, put down the guns and behave better. And if you do do those things, here are some things that we can do to support you in basically turning the leaf or putting down the gun or whatever. And I think many of those programs have proven to be effective because, again, I think they understand at the heart of it is that focus intervention is where you have to uh, focus your energies and efforts on. It's like Willie Sutton, he says, well, you know, why do you rob banks? And the reply was, well, that's where the money is. You got to go where the money is, where the payoff is. And the payoff isn't in having, trying to have broad-based interventions. It's really around trying to have interventions for the folks that are, you know, driving most of the problem. So those are the carrot interventions. And then sadly, you sometimes need to have the stick interventions, which are the law enforcement interventions where, you know, when law enforcement can identify and build a case around uh, any individual or individuals that are, you know, involved in gunplay, that they have the ability to make very, you know, strong cases, arrest, convict, and then sentence these folks. And um, oftentimes, sadly, you have to have, um, you know, federally enhanced uh, sentencing to really kind of create a deterrent because for some people, you know, going to a state jail is a place to go get their MBA in criminality. You know, it's, you know, somewhat local. They can be there with their, you know, associates and, you know, their, you know, their family members and friends or whatever can visit them. But if they send you uh, up on a federal charge, uh, it's not going to be two years. It's not going to be local. You're going to be across the country in Marion, Indiana or something like that. And the sentences are long and they're hard. And so, you know, you make a couple examples out of folks like that, then uh, then you can have impact on reducing gun violence. And I think it's, um, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, economic development and things like that. And all those are very important things from a long-term perspective. I think it's important to realize when you have a lot of communities in distress, literally they're bleeding out. The first thing you got to do is stop the bleeding. You can't you can't talk to the bleeding patient about you know managing their their weight. <laughs> you know you know yes yes they might be overweight yes they might have hypertension but we have to get to that later. The first thing is to stop the bleeding, and the way you stop the bleeding is you stop the shootings, and the way you stop the shootings is you focus on the few individuals that drive the shootings. Very straightforward. Yeah, I've seen I've seen that kind of targeted intervention at work uh, when I lived in New Haven, for example. Oh, yes, and yes, yeah. New Haven was a very strong practice, practitioner of that. Um, uh, I don't know who your mayor was at the time. I, I knew uh, Tony Harp, who was the mayor of New Haven, but that's probably after your time, I would imagine. 
I lived there for a little bit under Mayor Harp. Uh, okay. De Stefano was longtime mayor before that. Okay. So I remember both of them. I'm curious about the environmental side of this and how big a, a part of the shot spotter business that is. Because you've been using the technology for anti-poaching. And uh, I hear about blast fishing as well. Is that right? Yes, yes. I'm, I'm impressed. You've, you've done your research. And so it's, it, it has very de minimis impact on our financials, but our, you know, traditional financials. But in terms of the uh, ESG return or impact return, it's significant. And it, you know, for a couple of reasons. One is we're, we're doing something that, uh, well, let me step back and describe what we're doing first. Um, so in the case of any poaching, we basically put our acoustic sensors, uh, ShotSpotter works through the use of distributed uh, sensors that have the ability to ignore ambient noise, but recognize and timestamp impulsive noises, pops, booms, and bangs. So when someone fires a gun, when three or more sensors detect it, um, because the sensors are in different locations, we're able to use the time differential that each sensor detected the pop, boom, or bang and triangulate or pinpoint the exact location of that pop, boom, or bang within typically 30 to 60 seconds of the trigger being uh, pulled. And we performed some pretty sophisticated math to be able to, again, triangulate or pinpoint that location and then go through a couple classification steps to confirm that that pop, boom, or bang, in fact, was a gunshot versus something that was just a pop, boom, or bang. So that's how the system works. And we were challenged to figure out how we could apply the urban use of shot spotter into the bush in South Africa, where they're dealing with the issue of uh, poaching. And so uh, the good news is because it's relatively flat and relatively quiet, um, we, you know, we typically uh, deploy, you know, uh, 10 sensors per square kilometer um, in our urban deployments. In uh, the Kruger National Park in South Africa, uh, we can spread the sensors out much further because they just have to compete with a lot less, you know, noise, if you will, and it's relatively flat. So there we deploy almost kind of one sensor per 10 square kilometers. Uh, so it's almost the inverse. So that's kind of cool. But then what was really challenging is like, okay, you know, how do you get comms? and power to these uh, sensors because our sensors require both. They require power to kind of keep them, the sensors up and running. And they also require comms to be able to, when they do that detection and timestamping, they have to be able to send that timestamp information back to the, to the cloud where it's doing the heavy lifting of the location analysis and classification analysis. So uh, that turned out to be a really interesting project. Um, we solved the power problem with a combination of solar and battery. We also then have the challenge of where we deploy these sensors, um, the infrastructure deployment, typically in urban environments, we're deploying them up on top of rooftops, sometimes utility poles. In this particular situation, our first implementation, we did it in front of, on trees, which were, you know, kind of, you know, challenging, to say the least. And then on a second version, because we're able to downsize the, the, the battery and solar panels, we're able to put kind of almost like this uh, stake in the ground that uh, the sensor could go up on. So that was kind of that was that was kind of cool. And um, we uh, have been able to uh, detect an alert on a few poaching events. And uh, just about every time that's happened, there's been a successful ranger intervention to intersect or uh, intervene with the folks that are doing the poaching. And almost like um, in a very similar way to urban gunfire, 
in, in the poaching context, you have certain poachers that are prolific poachers. I mean, you know, you have some people that are accidental poachers, but, you know, the, the folks that do most of the damage in the Kruger are, are just a handful of folks that are really super skilled around being able to mostly come in from Mozambique, you know, uh, track out there. They might track out there for a few days before they poach and then kind of go make it make their way back across the border. Well, when you have a shot spot alert, uh, because, again, same situation, you could you could fire a gun in the Kruger and even if someone would hurt it, they couldn't tell exactly where it was coming from. And the idea that they would hear it would probably, you know, not not be realistic. I mean, people tend to find out about poaching events once they see the buzzards kind of flying around uh, over the carcass of the, sadly, of the um, of the rhino. So we've been very, very, very successful in having some su- successful ranger interventions with poachers. The word obviously gets out, so it's been a bit of a deterrent. And um, the rhino poaching uh, in the coverage area where we are part of the Kruger has uh, gone down considerably. So that's pretty cool. We then also uh, took the challenge to how to figure out how we can reimagine the technology to be used in the case of fish blasting. Same principle, these are explosive impulsive events that are happening because people are throwing incendiary devices uh, into the ocean, creating a boom bang, and then the the dead fish kind of pop up to the surface, they grab them. And I always thought it was the issue of overfishing, but, and that is an issue, but the bigger issue is and this shows how ignorant I am, but I learned quickly. The big issue is that when they when they uh, do blast fishing, they destroy the coral reef. When you destroy the coral reef, you destroy the feeding ecosystem for the fish. And when the fish aren't able to eat, then the fish aren't able to be commercially in fished, which then is the protein source for over a billion people in Asia. And it's a tipping point that if, you know, the coral reef goes, I mean, you have a real food protein security issue in Asia. So we were super excited with the support of some other nonprofit institutions to deploy our technology to show the, I'll call it the art of the possible, more on a proof of concept basis that we could, you know, reimagine our sensors, making them, instead of acoustic sensors, they become, well, they become acoustic sensors, but in the ocean context, in the water, sonar sensors, like a sonar-based sensor, I guess, uh, still using the time of arrival techniques that we have. And there you can even deploy fewer sensors per linear coverage area because of the way that sonar, you know, boom, you know, travels uh, quite efficiently uh, through water, much more efficiently than air. And um, so that's that's kind of interesting. And now we're at the point where we've proven the art of the possible. And now we'd like to figure out a way how to commercially scale this thing up to really have impact. That's neat. If I could take you a step back, I'd love to hear about ShotSpotter from a numbers perspective. Um, you know, the metrics that you track, whether they're financial employees or customers. We have about um, 120 plus employees in the company currently. We're serving, interestingly, about 110 plus customers, mostly domestically, but some, we have a couple of deployments uh, inter- internationally. We're a public company, as I mentioned, and we were we went public in 2017. Uh, Revenue-wise, we we guided our analysts uh, this year to 44 and a half to 45 million dollars of revenue. 
and for next year uh, through a result of a tucking acquisition that we've done because we're extending our platform beyond acoustic gunshot detection um, we've guided to uh, 58 60 million dollars so we're we're a company that i'd like to believe kind of punches in well above our weight uh, in terms of impact although we're relatively small from a revenue point of view we're quite efficient i think we're one of the few I would dare say only SaaS companies that has the ability to break even on a $10 million quarter or $40 million run rate. And that's because we're just hyper efficient um, because of the vertical that we serve and the fact that we have kind of created this category that I would you know, humbly say we have a monopoly position in uh, with very high barriers to entry. So we don't we don't have to uh, compete with folks. So we have a lot of leverage at the pricing line. We also have leverage in terms of our go-to-market. We don't have to boil the ocean for customer discovery or spend a lot of money for customer creation. And uh, our R&D is relatively tight and efficient because we've already invented that, you know, that thing called acoustic gunshot detection. And again, we're not in a feature war with another competitor, so we can kind of moderate our investment in R&D. I mean, we continue to invest in R&D to make it cheaper, better, faster, et cetera. But we're, again, not in a huge feature race war. So we're able to grow top line revenue nicely, yet our expenses uh, don't have to grow at the same rate that top line revenue grows because, again, we're producing profit already and have a very strong uh, balance sheet. And probably the thing that I'm most proud of um, in the company numerically, why that doesn't kind of show up in terms of gap financials, uh, which we can talk more about in detail later if you'd like. But we're huge in terms of thinking about customer success and onboarding and how that uh, translates into net promoter score as a company. We, I won't say, I don't want to offend anyone that's religious, but we're almost kind of worship at the uh, altar of uh, NPS, uh, Net Promoter Score, which for your listeners out there that aren't familiar with NPS, it's, um, you, you've probably been exposed to it, but maybe not aware of it. And that's when someone asks you the, what's called the Net Promoter Score question on a scale of zero to 10, how likely would you be to recommend said product or service to one of your friends, colleagues or whatever. And the idea is if you say a nine or 10, that makes you a promoter. If you say a seven or eight, that makes you neutral. And then six and below is a detractor. And then to get to your net promoter score, you take the percent of detractors, or excuse me, you take the percent of promoters, and then you subtract the percent of detractors, and that gives you your NPS score. And for us, our most recent uh, incarnation of NPS we scored a what's called a world-class category of 70%, which is, I'm going to say, it's almost like Apple Geico-like. Um, so that's really something we're quite proud of because our our customer eco-set is a really tough one. I mean, our, our customers are police departments, chiefs of police and deputy chiefs, and they can be super critical. <laughs> they're tough. They're tough. They're tough folks. They're tough graders. They're not warm and fuzzy folks. And so the fact that we can, you know, have that level of loyalty uh, to our stakeholders is really quite remarkable. And again, I think that feeds back into our efficiency because when you have strong net promoter relationships, they tend to work as a very effective salespeople, actually. So the word of mouth thing is real. And that's what NPS is all about. Yeah, that's a fabulous NPS score. Congratulations on that. Thank you for being a loyal listener. One thing I'd ask is please consider joining our giving circle. We support startup tech nonprofits with our donor dollars to act as the angels to seed new organizations seeking to scale and do good. So please 
go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. I'm curious to know, do investors want you to track impact metrics? The ones that we have currently in our ecosystem, I would I would say they like that idea, but they haven't been demanding of us in that regard yet. That's something that I think we're going to take on in uh, 2021 next year. I have some familiarity with that, having spent time as a, a board member for a number of years. And then last two years, I was chair of the board of Pacific Community Ventures, which was a hybrid call it kind of venture capital loan fund combined with advisory services that was, you know, driving living wage jobs in at-risk, underserved, or underinvested in uh, communities. And uh, there, there were all manner of measurements that we were tracking to talk to or speak to the impact. There's a whole world around that. And I just know too much about that to not, to not take advantage of that opportunity in the case of ShotSpotter. But I think you know, first things first, you know, you kind of crawl, walk, run, and then fly. I think us just kind of getting our sea legs as a, you know, traditional public company, albeit a small micro cap public company, kind of getting our sea legs around that. And then we could get a little bit fancier with, okay, you know, here, here's some ways that we're measuring impact in terms of, you know, the things that we're doing on the environmental side, or frankly, the things that we're doing on, with respect to urban gunfire and helping at-risk underserved communities be better served by police. It's always been interesting to me that uh, the people seem to, when we're out, you know, talking to uh, folks, uh, the investor class in Wall Street, they, they seem to react more positively to our work in the Kruger than they do with our work in Chicago, in St. Louis, which I find kind of interesting. But Yeah, my personal values would put people first. <laughs> you, you, you would think, but I mean, I do get it because I think this really kind of speaks to the issue of, um, uh, and this is why such a fascinating time, I can see the silver lining with all the challenges that we've had in the year 2020. I think one thing that a silver lining that's happened on this whole process is that I think by and large, that because, you know, the society has been exposed to like you know, the, the frailty of life and the, because of the pandemic or whatever, you're just, your empathy gene gets turned on. And that's why I think we have so much oxygen around kind of black lives matter. Then you have the George Floyd situation where I think people are now beginning to understand that like, Hey, you know, there, there are these like amazing discrepancies uh, between classes of people based on, you know, economic class or based on racial classes or whatever and uh, there just seems to be much more empathetic around that today than maybe they were kind of prior to the pandemic and George Floyd. And that's a positive. Certainly has been a lot more attention. Yes. This year, um, we'll see what it leads to in terms of actual change. I'm hopeful. I am, um, I'm curious to know more about how you got involved with ShotSpotter originally. Yeah, great question. Um, so I've been the CEO of a company called Guardian Edge that was acquired by Symantec, in, um, at, which at the time was a fairly high profile acquisition for Symantec. And it turned out to be a great acquisition for the investors in Guardian Edge, where they have pretty significant cash on cash returns. So by and large, it was you know a successful M&A transaction or, around for everybody, all the participants. 
all the participants, the buyer, the sellers, the employees and everything. And so uh, my name, I must must have popped up on some radar screens because I started to get some calls from headhunters, a few. And then I got this one for ShotSpotter, which was really kind of interesting. The company at the time was based in Mountain View. And I, as I mentioned, I lived in Oakland. So I was somewhat vaguely familiar with ShotSpotter being a resident of Oakland. And I had the notion that says, well, you know, this is like police technology, gunshot detection. It's like, I mean, that has nothing to do with my background, which was, you know, the number of years at IBM, you know, selling mainframes and then working on Wall Street as an investment banker and then being a series of software growth companies more around the security space and storage space. But certainly acoustic gunshot detection wasn't in my portfolio or bag of tricks. But I was curious enough. I said, I'm a curious person. I said, well, you know, I, I know it's deployed in Oakland. I have some friends that are in the Oakland Police Department. I just want to go down to Mountain View and take a look at what they what they do. And uh, had the the opportunity to meet the founder. Company had been around in 2010, approximately 10 years, uh, and they were struggling, which is one of the reasons they were looking for a CEO. And I met the founder, Dr. Bob, who's like this incredibly brilliant mathematician engineer, but also a quite humble, and I would describe him as a beautiful person that had, you know, invented this technology and left his job at Stanford Research Institute, he had been using math principles to figure out the epicenters of earthquakes and things like that. And he had the notion that he could apply these same principles acoustically to help police be notified of incidents of gunfire and then be able to respond. So he kind of quit his job and started, you know, I think he hoodwinked a couple of uh, MIT uh, PhD mathematicians as co-founders and they, they started a company and they had some limited success, I think, selling it to early adopter agencies at a high price point. But in any event, I met with Dr. Bob. And I just really, I really dug him. I was just like, oh, man, it's like, man, you quit your job in Stanford Research Institute to go do this thing. It's like, that's incredible. And like, I see what you guys are doing, but like, you know, you, you guys are getting ready to drive this thing over a cliff, um, trying to charge at the time on their legacy, I'll call their legacy business model was selling a you know premise-based CapEx high price solution at $250,000 a square mile and $40,000 a year per square mile annual maintenance. And although they had some sales, they literally had sold to the most early, early, crazy early adopter agencies that you'd find. And there's a handful of them. And then after you get the handful of them, then there's everybody else. And so these are like agencies like San Francisco and Boston, and even Oakland to this regard where, you know, they have budgets to go do things. And Jerry Brown was actually the sponsoring mayor at the time. And Oakland got its version, its very small version of ShotSpotter. So you can kind of get the idea of who the early adopters are. If you spend any time talking to most police agencies, there's no way in the world they go to their city council asking for you know, a half million dollars to a million dollars to deploy a quote unquote acoustic gunshot detection system. That's just, that'd be a complete non-star. So I was like, you know, I, I like what you're doing. I just, I felt like, you know, you, you think you guys are doing some really noble work, but the way you're doing it is not, you know, scalable or sustainable. And so what happened was, and, and I don't think I'm the right person because I don't, you know, I don't come from law enforcement. I don't know anything about law enforcement or anything like that. I don't own a gun, never want to own a gun, never touch the gun, um, you know. And so it's like, yeah, you know, I, I'm not the person, but I think maybe I can help. And so I started kind of coming down uh, once, maybe twice a week. And I must have I done that for uh, like about a month. And then it was like three times a week for the second month. And I was like, wait a minute, I'm actually working here and not getting, not getting paid for it. So, and then I said, I started developing the idea. I said, well, cause I was kind of doing due diligence at the same time, just kind of getting comfortable with like, okay, is this something 
that I could do. Cause at the time I wasn't sure I was even going to go back to work after we had sold guardian edge to a Symantec. I thought I was going to do more kind of nonprofit philanthropic things, but I started, you know, I, I just started really kind of falling in love with the purpose and mission. And then I, it, I realized that says, Hey, I might not be perfect, but I think I might be perfect for this role. I mean, and so I said, look, I'll, I'll take the job, but it's on the proviso that the investors in the board would support a fairly radical business model pivot where we would go from this CapEx premise-based solution, kind of one-time perpetual software license model to a lower cost, more affordable, in my opinion, easier lift managed services model where we charge an annual subscription fee. And the price that I picked was $40,000 a square mile, which was the maintenance that we had charged on top of the, you know, perpetual software license of $250,000 a square mile. And my vision was, and I oftentimes I go back and look at my board presentations. If we drop the price down to $40,000, we're going to take off. We're going to have like a thousand customers in, in, in three years. <laughs> I should have been fired so many times between now and, and it's not even funny because it didn't, it didn't quite work out that way. It was a little bit more of a, uh, of a struggle, but it was definitely the right thing to do because it allowed us to cross the chasm to more of the non-early adopter, I'll describe them as early to mid-majority customers where price and complexity are real friction points. So we're able to reduce that a lot. And we, we've taken what I determine, and I say all the time internally, is like we're long-term greedy. And what I mean by that is that, you know, we look at that relationship as a 15, 20-year relationship. And so when you look at it through that lens, you know, at the time, you know, charging $40,000 a square mile, if you can have that $40,000 a square mile over 15, 20 years, then it looks kind of interesting. Um, but that's the bet that you're making. And this is where customer success and NPS and loyalty is so important in subscription-based business models because you got to count on the renewal because if you don't get the renewal, then economically it doesn't work. So they they supported that you know, business model vision, even though I'd said we we're going to have a thousand customers, I guess maybe they knew better. We didn't, we didn't have zero customers, but we didn't have a thousand. And we started the trek and changing the culture and a lot of things that we had to do product service delivery wise to kind of deliver this service. We've been able to take the price up from $40,000 a square mile to now we're charging $70,000 a square mile, offer some other services around ShotSpotter, you know, do, you know, establish an incident review center where we're basically having all the alerts come into this uh, centrally managed IRC before pushing the alert out to the agency and really helping them drive best practices adoption and things like that to kind of create more stickiness. And, you know, that's our story. And we're just kind of, you know, grinding it out customer by customer. We're very grateful for everyone that we're able to get and bring onto the platform and watch them enjoy success. Um, I wish it would happen faster, but I think this is the type of thing. It is a relatively novel way to go about policing that um, it just takes a little while to get people to appreciate, you know, the why it's important to respond to and investigate all shootings, just not respond to homicides after the fact. Yeah, that story sounds to me a lot like a refounding moment where the company was founded again as you came in and said, well, we're going to go in this direction of subscription-based. We're going to have to build service, customer success into our culture. We're going to build this incident response center, and we're going to be judged every day by how we're performing for clients, not just selling them hardware. That does sound like a fundamental shift in the business. 
Yeah, no, it was. And I, th- I think, you know, we, we expected some some headwind in making that, although I, I have to tell you the story, more the headwind was internal than it was external. In fact, it was interesting at the time we had a, we had a sales leader in the in the company that was trying to maintain says well okay you know because they they knew that i was pretty deterministic in making this business model shift and so they weren't going to outright exist it but they were kind of passive aggressively resisted and the way the form of the passive aggressive resistance came was in the form like this hey brilliant idea ralph we're all in 100 on managed services subscription-based business model but you know we think we should preserve the option to sell it the old way too for those customers that want it that way, i.e. the way we like to sell it. <laughs> What's the passive resistance? You don't see Salesforce trying to sell a you know perpetual license for Salesforce, a premise-based perpetual software license for Salesforce. They offer it one way and that's the way we're going to do it. And you know, if there's one or two customers that don't want to do it that way, then we're just going to have to come around and catch them later when um, they're ready to do it. Although it's, I'm really struggling with why a customer would resist, you know, spending $40,000 a year for something they don't have to own, right? And that they can terminate after a year versus spending $250,000 and then $40,000. You have to explain to me what customer, even a municipal customer, what city would want to do that or why that would be the preferential way of them doing business. But it wasn't about that. It was really about, you know, the sales leader wanting to sell it his way. So we had to deal with that resistance. Right. And so you got through that cultural resistance, the investors and board supported this business model shift that you're talking about. Yes. And that was critically important. Where did the decision come to go public? You've seen so many tech oriented companies staying private longer, although there seems to be somewhat a rush for the uh, public markets in the last six months where do you where do you see things differently? Why did you want to go down that path? I thought we had a really interesting, compelling story that despite our relatively small size, that if we could find a um, a group of investment bankers, and we were very clear, it wasn't going to be like Goldman Sachs, where I'd worked for a few years, or like a like a Morgan Stanley. We we couldn't have gotten through their commitments committee process, but we felt like if we could find an entrepreneurial investment banking uh, partner or a team of investment banking partners that um, believed like we believe that we have a very interesting, uh, compelling story that um, we think there would be some investors that would be interested in that we could be successful as in having a public offering. And then also, more importantly, be successful operating as a public company, because I think, you know, the IPO is just like the first step. I mean, it's like the, you know, the event, but then you have like the ongoing events that happen, as we were joking about earlier before we got started here, like quarterly earnings calls and the like. Um, And so that uh, we found that group of partners, uh, more entrepreneurial uh, banks um, that um, supported that uh, vision. We had done a lot of work to prepare ourselves to do that. And I think having had the experience I had uh, uh, in investment banking and being um, an agent in a number of IPOs, that was very helpful in terms of, you know, what what's kind of required to uh, put yourself in a place where you could have um, you know, repeatability, really tight processes around, uh, you know, accounting, closing, et cetera. So we felt we felt good about that. And what motivated me for the going public process was um, we were talking earlier about how important alignment is in reducing friction and having kind of shared having a shared view or shared lens 
on, you know, how to go about doing things. Our capital structure was anything but aligned, I would say, you know, as a private company prior to my joining that had, you know, several rounds of capital raises. And so you had this layered cake of different series of preferred with different rights, different privileges, different investors, all with very different outcomes, depending upon, you know, what that outcome was. So you can imagine that was anything but a line <laughs> around there. The beautiful thing about going public is that um, all that, you know, preferential, you know, layered cake gets smashed into one thing called common. We're all aligned together. Management, every single investor, both the previous private investors as well as the new public market investors, we're all common now. So we all have this, we all have the shared, same shared lens through which to look at, you know, success or failure. And um, that was really important to me. And then there was just an issue of the liquidation stack that had been liquidation preference stack that had been built up over time that if the company had been acquired, you know, prior to going public, and we had to kind of pay that liquidation preference off that I mean, that again, that kind of gets to the, the interest, you know, the common shareholders, which were basically the employees would have just gotten smashed uh, with that amount of liquidation preference coming off the top before being able to come back in parapassu with the other preferred. So now what we had to do was convince the people that had those, you know, those rights and privileges that their, their long-term outcome was actually better off as a public company, if they could believe, and they should believe that we could execute as a public company that yes, there'd be giving up some preferences, but in the long term, if we could execute as a public company, like I had every confidence that we could, that they would be better off in the long in the long term, in the medium, I would say the medium to long term. And they and they were. And by and large, our biggest uh, investor prior to going public is still our biggest investor today. In fact, um, that, that investor bought shares in the IPO along with myself and the CFO and have been, has been a long-term shareholder ever since. That's great. Do you have any advice from your experience as the actually going public, the IPO process? I mean, my experience as a founder taking a company public was that I didn't feel like the customer, that the investment bank was probably in the end more focused on the institutional investor what was your experience and any advice that comes from that? And your feelings were correct. <laughs> and that's the nature because they they see you one time and they see the uh, public market investors all the time. And that's just the, the nature of the beast, I would say. I think there's a lot more transparency probably in the process now than there was. I think we were a educated uh, company going in, because I've been on the other side of that as an investment banker. I mean, so there was not going to be any, you know, you know, nefarious skullduggery uh, played on us just in that regard. I mean, you know, so for example, you, you probably, I would imagine you had the same experience that I had too, but we just kind of pushed through it. It's like, you know, wanting to, wanting to know how the book is building, right? Because they don't want to tell you that, right? As you're going through the roadshow, did you have that experience? Yeah, certainly. And, um, you know, one target price and then some different number coming out of thin air at the very last minute. Yeah. So for us, it, and that gets to how the book is being built. So the thing is, the tension is that, you know, they don't want to tell you how the book is building, because if you get the idea that it's oversubscribed by X, then you're going to be asking, the, you know, the relative, you know, the relevant question. Well, gee, if it's five times oversubscribed, then like why if it's five times oversubscribed at eleven dollars, why are we pricing it at eleven dollars? Right. Shouldn't it be $13 or $12 or I mean, whatever, something north of that. And, and they also don't want you to let up off the gas 
in terms of your last set of uh, meetings, you know, one-on-one -on -one meetings and presentations and like, if you quote unquote, think it's in the bag. So we kind of went through that a little bit. I think for us, we understood the pricing mechanism. I think my DNA is around, in case you missed it, or, you know, maybe your readers, your listeners haven't heard, it's like, I, I think long-term greedy relationships, partnerships over the long-term, right? Reputationally and everything else. And so for me, you know, I, I wanted to try to price this in a way that it wasn't going to be a zero-sum game where we would be feeling great and then the investor would be feeling bad. You know, you know, we win, you lose type of thing. Uh, but, but by the same token, I don't want it to be that the investor wins and we lose either. So like seeing this thing, you know, if we we're going to pop three X or something like that. That would have been a really bad outcome um, for the bank and for the company. Um, it, we would have made it so because that's just completely unacceptable. We had and our board was had some experience in this, too. So it just wasn't myself. But we're like we took the idea says, look, we want to price this in a way that uh, we encourage investors to invest the time and energy to get to learn the story and want to accumulate shares in the market afterwards. And so we're expecting uh, if we, and I think we priced it at our, our range was, I think our range was nine to 11 or something like that. I can't recall, but we ended up going public at 11. And uh, we, we expected and wanted the, the price in the aftermarket and secondary training to kind of go up to, if it ran up to, you know, 13 or 14 or whatever, uh, in the short term, we weren't going to be upset around that. And that's kind of the way it played out. And what we so we built a really strong investor base. And then over time, they were accumulating their positions. Right now, I think we're trading uh, just under $30. We traded as high as $60, uh, which seemed a little, a little wild at the time. That was two years ago. But, you know, our view is that we want to build a long-term valuable company. And the folks that were there with us, um, in the early stages and have come along for the right sense. If they're uh, thinking long-term the way we're thinking long-term, it's going to work out really, really, really well. Again, this is a, like an intrinsic value kind of Warren Buffett, you know, we're very efficient, you know, strong believers in capital allocation as well uh, in terms of buying shares back when, you know, we feel like the price is less than what we view our intrinsic value to be. We've done some really interesting value adding tuck-in acquisitions. Uh, most recently, the one we announced um, uh, last week, uh, where I, I think hopefully, you know, public market investors look at the, the management team and say, you know what, I can, I can trust my capital with these folks and I'll get, I'll get a good return and able to feel good about the return too. Cause this, this is a company that's, um, you know, doing good and doing well at the same time. I think that's a great place to wrap up. I like that sense of long-term greedy means building relationships with your key stakeholders. Where can people follow you online? Uh, sure. So I'm on uh, LinkedIn, I think under Ralph A. Clark. Um, I think I've got a Twitter handle out there too as uh, exec dad. Uh, I'll just comment that anything I say on Twitter is my own personal views and not that necessarily of the companies. Uh, but check me out there. And of course, uh, anyone wants to email me, uh, email me at rclark at shotspotter.com. And Miles, thank you so much for uh, thinking of me and inviting me to uh, participate on your on your podcast yeah it's great to have you thanks so much for joining us wonderful story awesome great continue to be safe and do well and i will uh, chat with you soon if you liked what you heard today on the podcast be sure to subscribe 
using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's Startups for Good, all run together, no spaces, .com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.